This evening, we're continuing our overview of the Old Testament book titled Job. With this as the focus, if you would, let's open our Bibles to Job chapter 2. As you make your way to the second chapter of Job, I just, I just want to take a moment here to remind you that the book of Job is a wisdom book. And as a wisdom book, it tackles tough topics like the existence of God as well as the meaning of life. This book also raises philosophical issues regarding the problem of evil as well as the nature of pain and suffering. Well, rather than addressing these existential themes in a sterile, scholastic sort of manner, we're actually invited to consider the problem of evil from the perspective of this historical individual named Job. And with this as the focus, I should remind you that the author of this book began by describing Job as a man who was blameless and upright, a a person who feared God and shunned evil. In other words, Job was a good man who kept short accounts with the Lord. And, and while we recognize that he was a man who, you know, sinned just like anybody else, he was also a man who was quick to offer the proper sacrifices for those sins. And in that way, he was keeping those short accounts. It was also his heart's desire to live a life that was pleasing to the Lord. And so when we say that Job was you know, blameless and upright, that's what we mean. He, he was a man of failings just like uh, any other person, and yet he was doing everything that he could to live his life for the Lord. Now I should remind you that Job was dwelling in the land of Uz, prob- uh, probably during the days of Abraham. Or in other words, Job was probably walking this earth around 700 years before the law of the Lord was given to Moses. And what this means then is that Job just couldn't open the Bible to Exodus. He couldn't just open up Exodus chapter 20 and, and you know, learn about the Ten Commandments. That book had yet to be written. And yet Job was still a man who knew the difference between good and evil. And he understood how to please the Lord. The reason why? Well, it's because our creator has actually written his moral law upon the hearts of every single person. In other words, listen, we aren't born blank slates. Some people think that we are tabula rasa, born blank slates. You know, they think that, you know, all the information that we acquire happens, you know, from birth forward. But that's just not the case. We are not born blank slates who then learn about morality according to the pragmatic ethics adopted by our individual societies. No, instead, we are fearfully and wonderfully made by a creator who has created each of us with the same sort of conscience, which helps us to understand the difference between right and wrong. This is why we feel guilty whenever we do something wrong. Those guilty feelings are part of the conscience that God has given to each individual so that we recognize when we're doing something that is, you know, sinful, something that would make us guilty. With all this in mind, you know, knowing that Job was pre-Bible, pre-book of the law, Job helps us to see how the Lord is able to convict the hearts of every single person. And yes, even those who even today are born in the regions of the world where the Bible has been banned. God can reach anybody anywhere at any time. And he can bring them to a conviction of sin and he can help them to understand that salvation is found alone in Jesus Christ. At the same time, the story of Job also raises the common question, which is typically presented in this way, why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? 
if ever there was a good person, Job was that person. And it was in our study last week when we learned about the integrity and the character of Job. And while it's true that Job was doing his best to live a life that was pleasing to the Lord, it's also true that he ended up becoming the target of Satan's evil scheme. In this sense, God ended up allowing bad things to happen to this good person. As a matter of fact, it was last week when we learned about the day when Satan came before the Lord. And it was at that point in time when he began to accuse Job of being a fair-weathered worshiper. Not only that, but the adversary also assured the Lord that Job would actually curse his creator the very second that he stopped receiving the blessings of the Lord. And in response, the Lord set out to prove the quality of Job's character and set out to prove Job's commitment by giving Satan the opportunity to test the faith of Job. Well, as you might imagine, Satan immediately launched into a multi-front attack on the house of Job. And when all was said and done, Job ended up losing his wealth and he lost all of his children. And and all this happened in just one day. I can't even begin to imagine the incredible pain that he suffered after receiving all of this terrible news in a single day. But rather than cursing his creator, Job responded with incredible faith as he declared, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. It's incredible. In other words, when the Lord blesses us with the health and the wealth that we all desire... Well, we should bless the name of the Lord. And the reason why is because every good gift and every perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. In other words, God is good all of the time and all of the time, God is good. And there's no variation in that. There's never going to be a day where there's a shadow cast on the goodness of God and we think, was he really good in that? Never going to happen. God is good all the time, and all the time God is good. And listen, this is still true even when we find ourselves suffering from financial troubles, physical traumas, even familial trials. No matter the evil that may befall us, the name of the Lord should still be blessed. And the reason why is because God is still good all of the time, though we don't like what's happening to us. When God allows bad things to happen to good people, God is still good. And whether we can understand it or not, he still has a good, a, a good purpose in these things that he allows. And in order to better grasp this truth, I want to continue to consider the troubles and the trials, even the tribulations of this character Job. And so if you would look with me here at Job chapter 2. I want to pick up our overview, beginning uh, there at verse 1. Here we read again, There was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them to present himself before the Lord. Well, here we go again, just like before, back in chapter 1, we find the the author of this book mentioning a, a heavenly meeting which took place on some unspecified day as the sons of God presented themselves once again before the Lord. And while we aren't told how often these heavenly meetings would take place, 
I do think that we should spend maybe a little time tonight considering the identity of these entities who are known as the sons of God. I'll remind you, uh, it was on our study last week when I pointed out that the, the title sons of God in this context, it's actually a reference to angelic beings which the Lord created for his glory. And as we consider how Satan was included within this angelic group, well, it's possible that this title had been given to the angels who are classified as cherubim, uh, but we can't say that for sure. This might be a title for all the different classes of angels, but, but regardless, what we do know is that this, this title is being used of cherubim like Satan. I should also remind you that the title Sons of God should not be confused with the messianic title Son of God. These are not uh, synonymous. And while it's true that the Lord Jesus is called the only begotten Son of God, well, it would be wrong for us to think that the Lord Jesus was maybe some sort of incarnate, in, incarnate, uh, incarnated angel, uh, like as if one of the sons of God had t- taken on human form. Uh, proof of my point can be found here in Hebrews chapter 1. Here Paul presents us with a rhetorical question by asking, to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son? Today I have begotten you. And again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. All of the angels of God have been called to worship the only begotten Son of God. Therefore, you know, those who insist that Christ Jesus is like the human incarnation of an angel, like that's what the Jehovah's Witnesses argue. They want us to believe that Christ Jesus is the human incarnation of Michael the archangel. Well, that's biblically impossible because Paul here is saying that all of the angels of God were called to worship the only begotten Son of God. All of the angels would also uh, include Michael, the archangel. So therefore, Jesus is not the incarnation of one of the sons of God. He is the only begotten son of God, or we might say that Jesus is God the Son. Paul confirms this with theological clarity in Colossians chapter 1. There he assures us that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the preeminent over all creation. For by him, that's by Jesus, all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist. Now, I want to think about this for a moment here, because if all things are created by Christ Jesus, whether visible or invisible, in other words, if all created things were created by Jesus, then Jesus is not a created being. It only stands to reason that Jesus must be the human incarnation of God the Son, or uh, the, the, you know, John, John refers to him as the Logos of God, or the divine mind of God. But it would be incorrect for us to confuse Jesus with the sons of God mentioned here in the book of Job. At the same time, there are, all the, uh, there are also those who would have us to believe that the sons of God mentioned here in Job are actually lesser gods who were being gathered together in some sort of council of the Elohim. They want to say that the word Elohim is the plural word, and so therefore there are many Elohims, and here we find this group of Elohims getting together you know, for some sort of you know, heavenly hangout. 
For example, I want to consider this argument. It's from an Old Testament scholar. His name is Michael Heiser. And here's what he writes. Basically, the Satan in Job is an officer of the divine counsel, sort of like a prosecutor. His job is to run to and fro throughout the earth to see who is and who is not obeying Yahweh. When he finds someone who isn't and is therefore under Yahweh's wrath, he accuses that person. This is what we see in Job, and it actually has a distinct New Testament flavor. Okay, so according to Dr. Heiser... Uh, This meeting wasn't a group of angels who were being called to be accountable to their creator. No, instead, this was some sort of divine council of the Elohim. And not only that, but, but he would also have us to believe that the Satan in Job isn't really the Satan. Uh, rather, this is some sort of official title for one of the officers of the divine council. And he, ha- he has to dismiss Satan as being the Satan that we know today. He has to dismiss that because that Satan is a fallen cherub who was named Lucifer. And so therefore, if it's a fallen angel named Lucifer, then this council can't be the Elohim as he suggests. Now, in order to grasp the basis for his belief, Dr. Heiser often appeals to the 82nd Psalm where we learn that God has taken his place in the divine council. That's the ESV translation. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. And people, when they come across Heiser's material, they come across this and go, wow, I never saw that. Here it is. He's right. It's the Elohim getting together, hanging out, lesser gods. Actually, when we consider this passage in, in its context, we learn that you know, this divine council, which is in the midst of the gods, this can't be the same meeting mentioned in Job chapter 1 and 2, because this is happening in the midst of the gods, where the entities back in Job chapter 1 and 2, these are the sons of God. Not the Elohim, but the sons of the Elohim. Two different groups. So who are these in the divine council of the gods? Well, as always, read the context, people. <laughs> it's really that simple. You know, and, and with this question in mind, let's take a moment to consider the context of the 82nd Psalm. Here Asaph declares, How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Selah. Defend the poor and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and needy. Deliver the poor and needy. Free them from the hand of the wicked. They do not know, nor do they understand. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are unstable. I said, you are gods and all of your children of the most high, but you shall die like men and fall like one of the princes. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all nations. Now here in this psalm, we find the seer named Asaph. He's actually rebuking the human judges who were raised up to represent God And therefore, they were called gods. They were were representatives of God in their judgment. Therefore, he called them gods to the people that they were judging. So, So he's referring to the judges as gods, as Elohim, not the angels. And so this, uh, you know, this, this psalm should not be confused with the sons of God that we find back in the book of Job. And with that being the case, I encourage you, steer clear of Dr. Heiser's lesser gods doctrine because it really borders on, you know, pantheism or something, or polytheism, I should say. And, uh, and, and with that, you know, uh, you know, I have no doubt that he is a, uh, an incredible Hebrew scholar, 
But listen, even when an incredible scholar says something stupid, it's still stupid, no matter how smart the guy is. Okay. Well, the scriptures are perfectly clear. There's only one God, and all other so-called gods, they're nothing more than demons in disguise. How do I know this? Well, because unlike Dr. Heiser, I'm actually relying on the answer codes in the, in the back of the book, so to speak, right? Like every smart student understands that you go to the cheat sheet in the back of the book and get the answers first, and then you take the test. You know, and so that's what I've done. I've looked to the New Testament for proper theology and helping me to understand, you know, who the lesser gods actually are. And with that, I want to consider something that Paul writes here in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. It's here where he declares, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is no other god but one. How many gods? One. Does that make room for lesser gods? Absolutely not. Oh, well, wait, look at verse 5. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, and there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we live. In other words, Paul's saying, look, there's a lot of gods out there. There's a, there's a lot of things being worshipped as God. There's a lot of people calling a lot of different things God. But in reality, there's only one God, and there are no actual lesser gods. That being the case, you know, every other so-called God is nothing. It's nothing more than an idol, which according to Paul is a demon masquerading as God. This is exactly how he puts it in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Here he asks, what am I saying then that an idol is anything or what is offered to idols is anything? Rather that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to lesser gods. Oh wait, that's not what it says. They sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. In other words, the gods that were being worshipped throughout the pagan nations weren't lesser gods that were appointed over those regions, as Dr. Heiser seems to suggest. They're not appointed as lesser gods by Yahweh. No, instead, these were nothing more than demons who were run amok and, and, and running around the planet pretending to be gods. They weren't pretending to be lesser gods. They were pre- pretending to be gods. And the pagans were worshipping them as gods. And listen, this is not only true of, of New Testament times, but if we look back at Deuteronomy chapter 32, we see the same thing being spelled out by Moses. It's Deuteronomy 32, verse 16 and 17. That's where Moses says, they provoked God to jealousy with foreign gods. With abominations, they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons, not to God. To gods they did not know. To new gods, new arrivals that your fathers did not fear. So, so these, these gods that were being worshipped amongst the pagans, what were they actually? Well, according to Moses, they were demons. Or in other words, fallen angels. The so-called gods of this world are really just fallen angels masquerading as deities when in fact they're just demons. And with that being the case, well, there's no biblical reason for us to think that the heavenly meetings mentioned here in the book of Job was some sort of divine council of lesser gods. I just encourage you to dismiss that nonsense altogether. Not only that, but we can also be certain that the Satan mentioned here in Job 
is in fact the fallen angel known as Lucifer. And to prove my point, remember, Dr. Heiser, he wanted us to believe that this is actually the, the title of an office, Satan, you know, for an officer who was sent to go out and find those who were breaking the laws of God so that they could be punished. Well, the laws of God had yet to be revealed yet. You know, again, the, the, the Ten Commandments had not been revealed yet. And, and so with that, we have to understand uh, that this entity known as Satan wasn't looking for lawbreakers, but he was making false accusations against Job. As a matter of fact, let's pick up our study of Job chapter 2. I want to begin reading at verse 2. Here we learn that the Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? So Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil, and still he holds fast to his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without cause. Now here in these verses we find the Lord, he's accusing Satan of inviting an unjust punishment against a person who had done nothing wrong. Satan had incited or encouraged the Lord to destroy Job and without real cause. Now, does that sound like a heavenly officer, you know, who is out there as a lesser God trying to accomplish the will of the Lord? Of course not. He's an accuser. He's an accuser of a man who was trying to please the Lord. Clearly, this is the same Satan that John mentions in Revelation chapter 12, where we learn that Satan is the accuser of the brethren who accuses us before our God day and night. The Satan who accuses the brethren every day and night is the same Satan who accused Job of being a fair-weathered worshiper. And while it's true that the Lord allowed Satan to put Job's faith to the test, it's also true that the evil scheme of Satan failed to stumble the servant of the Lord. Unfortunately for Job, the devil wasn't done here. And the devil was determined to destroy his faith. And the reason why is because that's what the enemy does. The enemy comes to kill and steal and destroy. With this in mind, I want to consider the way that Satan continued to put a target on Job's back. And so if you would look with me again here at Job chapter 2, we'll pick up our study beginning at verse 4. Here we learn that Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, yes, all that a man has he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand, but spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with painful boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took for himself a potsherd, which with which to scrape himself while he sat in the midst of the ashes. Now here in these verses, we find the Lord, he's providing Satan with permission, permission that allowed Satan to go and affect the physical health of Job. Now, I have no doubt that many of us are wrestling with questions right now regarding the reason for this sort of permission. Why would God allow Satan to go and affect the physical health of Job? Why would the Lord allow Satan to cover Job's body with these boils? I, I, you know, I have a hard time with this. Why does the Lord allow his servants to suffer these sorts of spiritual attacks that oftentimes result in sickness and disease? 
You know, we could go on and on with more questions. Why does God allow babies to get cancer? Why, why, why does God allow rape and incest and these sorts of things? And we could just go on and on and on with these sorts of questions. And with that, I just, you know, I want to remind you of the way that Paul suffered in a similar sort of way. You know, it's in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. There Paul declares, A thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in my infirmities and in reproaches, in needs and persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Here in these verses, we find Paul, he's describing the way that the Lord had allowed a messenger, uh, which can also be translated angel. He allowed an angel of Satan to affect his physical health with something that he described as being a thorn in the flesh. A Greek scholar named Spiros Zodiades, he provides us with a contextual definition of the word thorn, and he does this by describing it as something which causes severe pain or constant irritation, probably some bodily infirmity equal to sickness and weakness. According to Thayer, Paul's thorn in the flesh was some sort of constant bodily ailment or infirmity. And while it's true that this infirmity had been caused by a servant of Satan, a messenger or an angel that had been sent by Satan, well, it's also true that this was, this was something that affected him physically. It, it was a spiritual messenger that brought forth some sort of physical infirmity, much like we see here in the book of Job. Satan went and attacked Job, and as a result, he ended up suffering physically from boils all over his body. Now, now listen, it's important to understand that every infirmity and illness is not a satanic attack. And, and you know, there are plenty of scriptures to support that. That, that we, we can't sit here and say that every time we're sick that, you know, you have to rebuke the demon of you know, COVID or something, and, you know, you, that's how you get it out, right? No, just take some ivermectin, you'll be fine. We just got canceled from YouTube, by the way. But, uh, but seriously, you know, you know the, the, the people who teach this idea that every sickness is demonic, it's just not true. We don't, we don't see that playing out. And yet, we also know that there are demons that can, uh, by the permission of God, come and make us sick affect us physically. The Lord does at times allow the enemy to put our faith to the test so that we might learn how to stop relying on our own strength and how to start relying upon the strength of Christ Jesus. That's precisely the point that, the, that uh, Paul is making here. And, and, uh, and he considers here and, and presents us with the response from the Lord after praying three times for healing. So he prayed three times for healing. And, and do you think Paul had the faith to be healed? I'm going to guess that he did. And yet the Lord responds to this prayer that he prays three times. The Lord responds, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. In other words, the Lord was allowing Paul to suffer this physical infirmity so that he might learn to rely on the supernatural strength of our Savior Jesus. 
And, and once Paul grasps this, he responds with incredible faith by declaring this. He says, most gladly I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses. For Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Rather than relying on our own strength to stand against the schemes of Satan, the Lord wants us to learn how to stand in in the supernatural strength of our Savior Jesus, because that's when we're truly strong. We don't have the strength to stand against the devil and his demons. If it comes down to me fighting a demon, I mean, good luck, I can't even see him. But when it comes to, you know, to the Lord's strength, oh, well, well, he can give us the strength to fight this spiritual battle and win. I like the way that Paul puts this in Ephesians chapter 6 where he says, Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Christian, listen, the Lord isn't calling us to become strong physically. He's calling us to become strong spiritually. And listen, the Christian who is focusing more on their physical strength than than they are on their spiritual strength, they eventually realize that the latter is much more important. These bodies are going to give out. These bodies are going to give up. And, and the weaker we get, you know, the more we learn to rely on the strength of the Lord. So why not just learn that as soon as possible? Rather than waiting for sickness, rather than waiting for disease, rather than waiting for this, this body to fall apart, to start realizing that we really need the strength of the Lord, let's just figure it out tonight. We need to walk in the strength of the Lord. And I don't care how much you can deadlift, you're still going to die. Are you walking in the strength of our Savior Jesus? That's the real question. Because this is what we need to be ready for, the attacks of the enemy. Not only that, but this will also help us to be ready for the conflicts that occur within our social circles. And with this as the focus, let's pick up our study of Job chapter 2. You would look with me there beginning at verse 9, because here we learn that Job's wife said to him, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and shall we not accept adversity? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Now here in these verses, we're finally introduced here to Job's wife. And as we consider the ungodly counsel that she presented to her husband, I want to take a moment to point out that first impressions aren't always the best way to judge a person. Let's not forget here that, you know, this was the wife who gave Job 10 kids. Jeez. And then can you imagine giving birth and then nurturing 10 kids? I mean, that alone right there is is worth just, you know, everlasting retirement. But listen, this is also the same mother who, after raising all of her kids and after you know, get, setting them up for success and to head out on their own, well, then she discovers that they were all killed on the same day during some sort of satanic storm. 
Can you imagine? I can't. I have no doubt that her heart was broken. And I have no doubt that she was asking those tough questions. Why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? I have no doubt that she was struggling with bitterness. Possibly even shaking her fist at God. Then came the the day when her husband ended up being covered from head to toe with boils. And I'm guessing at that point she's just kind of like, oh, he's the problem. That, he's being punished. That's why the, the kids died. Rather than encouraging him to hold on to the hope of knowing that God is always good, she instead enticed him to simply curse God and die. If I had to guess why, it's because she couldn't understand why God allows bad things to happen to good people. So with that, you know, I... In my heart, I kind of give her a pass, realizing that, man, she was having the worst time of her life. Thankfully, though, Job wasn't some simp who was willing to do whatever his wife said. No, instead, he accused her of speaking like the foolish women. You know, the foolish women and how they speak. If you don't, just go on YouTube. Just start playing any video and... uh, But he accuses her of speaking foolishness. And then he corrected her by helping her to understand that the God who is truly good is also the same God who might have a reason for the adversity that he allows. Think about it like this, you know, there's, uh, there's a reason why we feel pain, right? If you put your hand on a hot stove, all of a sudden your hand starts, you know, feeling that burning sensation, that burning sensation is a good thing. It lets you know that if you don't move your hand, you're going to die. So, so pain can be a good thing at times. We just have to have the proper perspective about it. And the God who blesses us with many good things is the same God who at times allows adversity in our lives and might just have a good reason for it. Let's be humble enough to recognize that we just don't always know. And so this lady who no doubt is speaking from from bitter pain, and, and for good reason, is giving counsel that is completely wrong. She she's giving ungodly counsel by encouraging her husband to simply sin against the Lord and let him kill you. This ungodly counsel of a sinning spouse, well, it's always wrong. Please trust me when I tell you. The ungodly counsel of a sinning spouse is always wrong. Sadly, there are many in the church today who, you know, are willing to comply with the ungodly counsel of a sinning spouse. And the reason why is they just don't want to deal with the relational conflict that occurs whenever we voice our concerns or share a word of correction from the scriptures. And I've seen spouses, whether husbands or wives, either way, you know, I've seen, you know, one following the advice of another, despite the fact that the advice is completely unbiblical. I've watched many Christians over the years being led by the unbiblical counsel of a sinning spouse when they should be taking a stand according to the word of God and, and according to the will of God. They should be taking a stand and correcting that spouse just as Job corrected his wife 
here in our text tonight. And and it's for this reason that I encourage every Christian to realize that there's going to be times when the spiritual attack that, that comes against us is actually coming from the person you married. That the unbiblical counsel that you're hearing is actually coming from the mouth of your spouse. And it's at that point in time when you must stand in the strength of the Lord according to the instructions that we find in his word. You know, explaining to God one day that you lived in sin because you didn't didn't want to argue with your spouse anymore, it's not going to fly. God's not going to be like, well, if if your husband said so or if your wife said so, then by all means. Nope. We cannot allow ourselves to be led by a spouse living in sin just to keep things cool in the house. We have to continue standing in the strength of our Savior and walking according to his word. And listen, the same is true when it comes to the unbiblical counsel of close friends. And with this in mind, let's pick up our study of Job chapter 2. Look with me there at verse 11. Here we read now, when Job's three friends heard of all this adversity that had come upon him... Each one came from his own place, Eliphaz, the Temanite, Bildad, the Shuhite, and Zophar, the Namathite, for they had made an appointment together to come and mourn with him and to comfort him. And when they raised their eyes from afar and did not recognize him, they lifted their voices and wept, and each one tore his robe and sprinkled dust on his head toward heaven. So they sat down with him on the ground seven days. And seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his grief was very great. Now here in the final verses of this chapter, we're introduced to these three men who came to console their their good friend Job. And Well, it's true that they showed him great sympathy by simply sitting with him for seven days. Well, it's also true that the bulk of this book is a record of all the unbiblical counsel that they began to offer on day eight. Yeah, that's what's going to happen. We're going to continue to go through this book and consider all of the ungodly counsel that they offered uh, in response to the great grief of Job. And with that being the case, let me just tell you right now, and I'll probably say it several more times throughout our study of this book. When somebody tries to give you counsel from the book of Job, you might want to make sure uh, that it's not bad counsel because there's a lot of bad counsel in Job. And it's recorded in the, in the book of Job, but that doesn't make it true. It doesn't make it correct. And, and that's true for the rest of the Bible as well. There are many things that are accurately recorded in the Bible, but they're not true things. They're deceptive doctrines. And we have to make sure that when somebody quotes the scriptures, you know, that they're not using something that is false doctrine that was being exposed in the word of God. Well, as we continue to make our way through this challenging book, we're going to learn about all the ways that these guys assured Job that he was suffering because, you know, he was guilty of sin. There was sin in his life and God was punishing him. And this is the wrath of God being poured out on him because he was wrong. And well, we already know that the Lord weighed in on this and called him a blameless and upright man. So we know that all of their counsel, which was, you know, that you're a sinner, you need to repent so that maybe God will relent of all this punishment. We know that all this counsel is wrong. But the friends of Job, well, they were the original faith healers. You know, these are the original Kenneth Copelands and Todd Whites and all these sorts of guys. 
Yeah, they were theologically and practically wrong by you know, accusing him of sinning, and therefore, here's the result of that. Now, at the same time, it's not to suggest that there aren't natural consequences to sinful decisions. There most certainly are. You know, if, if you're making sinful decisions in your life, you know, there could be natural consequences. So, so don't be surprised, you know, if you're an alcoholic, you know, that, you know, you end up getting a DWI. Or if, or if you're going to continue, you know, smoking like a chimney, don't, don't be surprised if you get lung cancer. And, you know, if you, you know, womanize and go run around and these sorts of things, don't, don't be surprised if you end up with an STD, you know, and these sorts of things. Like there are natural consequences to sinful decisions. But that's not the case in this book. But the friends of Job were convinced that their counsel was correct, and yet they didn't have the spiritual sense to realize that their advice wasn't really based in truth. And to be fair to them, listen again, they didn't have access to the Bible where they could get grounded in good theology. And so we're not going to be overly critical of them as we continue to make our way through this book. But at the same time, listen, I do want to encourage every Christian to remember that we have the fullness of God's word today. Those guys didn't have the fullness of God's word. And Job didn't have access to the full scriptures, but we do. And with that being the case, we're able to test the advice of those who attempt to help us with their well-meaning counsel. And listen, if, the, if their counsel doesn't line up with the word of God, no matter how much they love you, it's wrong. They might be the sincerest saint in the world, and yet giving you counsel that is completely unbiblical. They might want for your, for your best, and yet be presenting you with something that's just not true. That being the case, I encourage you to remember what Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. It's verses 21 and 22 where he says, Test all things. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Christian, listen, rather than blindly following the advice of well-meaning believers who are trying to help us, well, listen, sincerity doesn't equal truth. Earnestness does not equal truth. A person can be completely sincere and and totally earnest and yet be telling you something that's false. It's why we have to test all things, examining all counsel in light of God's word. And as we discover what the word of God says about these things, well, then we ought to follow in the footsteps of Job by abstaining from every form of evil, which includes rejecting counsel that is unbiblical. Please trust me when I tell you that the devil and his demons have no problem deceiving us, even using our confidence and our counselors to present us with unbiblical advice. And I don't care if this is, you know, someone with, you know, uh, you know a bunch of degrees and, and, and you, know, you know, they have all the right n- uh, letters and numbers b- behind their name and, and you know, they're, they're professional counselors and these sorts of things. Listen, if what they're saying is unbiblical, it's wrong. And the enemy has no problem using the people that we count on and trust in to present us with advice that's unbiblical. It's why we have to test all things. We have to test all counsel. Because the enemy wants to kill us and steal and destroy us, and he wants to bring us back into bondage. Therefore, we need to make sure that we are abiding in the word of God so that we can become those believers who are blameless and upright as we learn how to shun what is evil in the fear of the Lord. Let's pray.